This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Look for Miracles. In the first half, Lawrence P. Vincent shares his address, Ordinary Lives, Extraordinary Miracles. Then in the second half, Catherine H. Black speaks on Don't Miss the Miracle. During my career as a professional opera singer, I spent months and sometimes years in preparation for an important concert or stage production. One thing was certain and unavoidable. The time would arrive when I had to stand on the stage in front of thousands of people and sing. This musical accountability was swift and very audible to my credit or shame. Immediately, I could see the quality of my performance reflected in the face of the conductor. As we anxiously and await and prepare for the hallmark events in our lives, it feels at times as if they will never arrive. We fantasize in anticipating of getting our first driver's license, of graduating from high school, of attending college or going on a mission, of getting married, of experiencing the birth of a child, and much more. Just as surely as these highly anticipated events will arrive and pass, so will the time of our mortality come to an end. As Jacob in the Book of Mormon records, it will pass, as it were, unto us a dream. All of us have dreams and aspirations and solid goals. As we use our allotted days and years to bring them to fruition, there are six principles I have found which, when practiced, can dramatically affect the outcome of our lives. They can bring us many wonderful blessings and even miracles which can build our faith and shape our lives in ways we never thought possible. Hopefully, when we stand face to face with our Savior, our inevitable reunion can be sweet beyond measure as we see the quality of our earthly performance reflected in His smiling face. I have been asked to share some of my life's experiences with you. In doing so, I do not wish to glory or boast in my own strength or talent. But like Alma, I do glory in my Savior and His goodness. It is with deep gratitude and humility that I recount these very personal events. I pray that through my testimony, the following principles may assist you in experiencing how the Lord can make a miracle in your life and of your life as you move toward this future reunion. Principle one, make the Lord your partner as you prepare. As we read the scriptures and observe President Hinckley's examples of ordinary men doing extraordinary things, an unmistakable pattern and path to the extraordinary becomes evident. All of the following men drew themselves away, most of them in fasting and mighty prayer, to receive direction and strength to do what must be done. Moses on Mount Sinai, Nephi, Enos, Joseph Smith, and President Kimball, to name but a few, all formed a solid partnership with their Creator. All were feeling inadequate. All had monumental assignments or decisions to make. Even the most extraordinary being on this earth, Christ Himself, found it necessary to draw Himself away for 40 days before commencing His life's work. At the end of this time, a partnership had been forged which would sustain him through Satan's temptations and, finally, his unimaginable suffering. How much greater is our need? 
I venture to say that every man and woman sitting behind me in this stand, as well as many of you in this assembly today, have already formed this partnership and through it have experienced miracles of the extraordinary. In my wildest dreams and loftiest aspirations, I never envisioned myself as a professional opera singer. Never. My wife and I had been married but a short time when we first moved to Overton, Nevada, directly after graduating from BYU. I was content with my new job as a music teacher, and as far as we were concerned, this was to be our home for the rest of our lives. We bought an old home, and I mean old, and fixed it up with air conditioning, a picket fence, and other amenities. During the summer months, I continued my education and completed my master's degree at Northern Arizona University in 1977. It was there that the stirrings of a dream began to be felt. My voice teacher and mentor, Edgar Stone, encouraged me to seriously think about a career in opera. I struggled with this idea and dismissed it. I could not envision how such a career would be conducive to the achievement of my primary goal, that of being a good husband and father. How could I possibly balance family responsibilities, stage life, and church service? Would I be able to maintain personal integrity in such a highly competitive career? As I prayerfully considered this germinating dream, I began hearing of other members of the Church who had pursued such a course while successfully raising a family. But the most powerful source of encouragement and inspiration was my dear wife, Jeannie. One evening after a rehearsal for the high school production, I returned home to find her sitting alone in our den. It was obvious she had been crying. Shocked, I asked if someone had died. She said no. She had been listening to the recording of my master's recital. Was it that bad, I asked. (laughs) She smiled and told me, no, no, it was just fine. However, she knew with certainty that the Lord had other plans for us and we would need to leave Overton. Such an important and life-altering decision cannot be made alone. By then, we had three sons. I knew that uprooting our little family from the security of our nearly completed home and comfortable job would be nothing short of insanity without confirmation from the Lord. We fasted and fervently prayed for guidance. One afternoon, just as we were about ready to end our fast, I stopped at the post office to collect the mail. The July 1977 issue of the Ensign had arrived. I opened to the first presidency message and read President Kimball's life-changing words specifically addressing the arts. And I quote, Who of us has not sat spellbound with Aida, Il Trovatore, and other masterpieces of Verdi? Can there never be another Verdi or his superiors? Is there anyone who has not been stirred by the rich, melodic voice of Enrico Caruso, Italian-born operatic tenor? Surely there have been few voices which have inspired so many. President Kimmel continued, We also remember the celebrated Jenny Lind, the Swedish singer. Do you think there are no more voices like Jenny Lind's? Our day, our time, our people, our generation should produce such. As we catch the total vision of our potential and dream dreams and see visions of the future. Can you imagine how we felt as the impact of this message penetrated our souls? It was as if the Lord himself had literally spoken to us. 
We had received an extraordinary answer and knew what had to be done. Together, with the Lord as our partner, it became our challenge to figure out how to do it. In another series of small yet irrefutable miracles, we were able to sell our home and were led to the name of John McCollum, a professor at the University of Michigan who had agreed to accept me as a private student. On our youngest son, Zachary's first birthday, we had loaded all that we owned into a truck and drove the 2,000-plus miles to Ann Arbor, Michigan. Three years after completing my doctorate, I continued my singing career in New York City with the Goldovsky Opera Company. Principle number two, doubt not, fear not. It seems with each great spiritual event, each divinely confirmed step, an intense buffeting follows. To illustrate, let us consider the experience of Moses in the Pearl of Great Price and Christ at the end of his great fast. After experiencing glorious things we cannot possibly comprehend, both were targeted for intense opposition. Using doubt and fear, Satan will also try to dissuade us from our course and persuade us to take the counterfeit. The reality of professional singing, which included being absent from my family for up to eight weeks at a time during touring productions, was like a splash of cold water. The old nagging question surfaced, what had I done? Had I left my job, dragged my little family far away from the security of a comfortable life for this? Had I really acted upon inspiration, or should I let my dreams die and simply bury them? Things were definitely not turning out the way we had envisioned, and for the first time, I was really afraid. When I took these doubts and fears and laid them at the Lord's feet, the answer to our dilemma came as dramatically and miraculously as our directive to leave Overton. During one of our long-distance conversations, I told my wife about several of my colleagues in the touring group who had spent some time in Europe. There, it was possible to be a member of an opera company, keep regular hours, to have health and retirement benefits, and best of all, to stay in one place. It sounded like a dream come true. We had only one problem. How would we finance an audition tour to Europe? Absolutely no one knew of our conversation. A short time after our talk and heartfelt prayer, a dear friend called. To my utter amazement, he brought up the subject of a European audition tour and offered to finance the trip. With tears of joy and unbelievable gratitude, we thanked our Heavenly Father for such an incredible miracle and the generosity of such a spiritually sensitive friend. I made my reservation shortly thereafter, boarded the plane in New York, and three weeks later, miraculously, had a job in a beautiful city, the oldest city in Germany, Trier. Principle three, there is a way prepared. In Paul's first epistle to the Corinthians, he writes, But as it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. My dear brothers and sisters, after you have invited the Lord to be your partner and dispelled that doubt which can stop your progress, stand aside and allow Him to prepare the way. When I returned home from the audition tour, we had less than a year to financially prepare for our German adventure. We had moved in with my parents in Denver to save every penny possible. There were five plane tickets to purchase, 
And after our arrival in Europe, a car to buy, an entire house to furnish, how in the world could we earn that kind of money in such a short period of time? Our middle son, Ethan, was in the second grade when he learned of our impending move. He and his older brother, Todd, had seen old paintings of snowy German towns with mosaic cobblestone streets upon which horse-drawn carriages were pulled. One afternoon, as they asked us a few questions about our upcoming move, it became touchingly apparent to us that they thought we would be moving to a place with no electricity and that our only means of transportation would be horse and carriage. But they were willing to go with us. They didn't have a choice. (laughs) Ethan came home excitedly one day from school. He had mentioned to his teacher that his dad was an opera singer and that we would soon be moving to Germany. That evening, his teacher called and asked if I would visit his class and introduce the children to opera. I thought, no problem, I'll just sing a couple of arias and answer a few questions. Several days later, however, the principal called and asked if I would present the program to the entire student body. Well, I guess Jeannie and I will have to really prepare something now, I thought. That something evolved into an elementary school assembly program that we called What is Opera Anyway? Its popularity increased as it was promoted by newspapers and word of mouth until nearly every school district in the greater Denver area requested our services. We tallied our earnings just before leaving for Europe, and gratefully, miraculously, we had more than enough to finance our move and our purchases. Principle four, work hard and wait upon the Lord. Are there times when you feel as if you have done everything in your power and the Lord is still not answering your petitions? As the days, months, and years of your life seem to pass and your life seems to be on hold, let me give you some food for thought. Please turn with me to Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. All of you are familiar with the wonderful promise to those who keep the law of tithing. In Malachi chapter 10 we read, Bring ye all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be meat in mine house, and prove me now herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, if I will not open you the windows of heaven and pour you out a blessing that there shall not be room enough to receive us. Now, let's focus our attention on the next verse. It holds a glorious promise of protection, of preservation, and of great hope. We read, And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes, and he shall not destroy the fruits of your ground, neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. Keep this verse in mind as I relate the following story. Our first home in Europe was located in a beautiful valley nestled among ancient vineyards near Trier. One year there was an exceptionally good crop. The grapes were more plentiful and sweeter than they had been in years. Nearly everyone in the valley was dependent in one way or another on the success of the grape harvest. A few weeks before the laborious work of harvesting the grapes was to begin, a devastating frost hit the entire valley. When we awakened early the next morning, we were surprised to see hundreds of our neighbors already working frantically, trying to save as much of the crop as possible. The tiny stem holding each bundle of grapes had been affected by the frost and was unable to hold its precious fruit any longer. Once the grapes hit the ground, and the temperature rose, 
It was just a matter of hours before the grapes were ruined. The vine had cast her fruit before the time. Our family had made the German adjustment well. In addition to assimilating another language and culture, we had been lovingly accepted into our little branch. However, we knew our time in Trier would be relatively short. Theaters in Germany are classified according to their size, the number of orchestra members, and available finances. Trier is a small city theater and is listed among European theaters as a D-house. The dream of every opera singer is to be employed as a soloist in an A-house. A-houses, or theaters, are comparable to the Metropolitan Opera in New York City or La Scala in Milan. They include such opera theaters as Hamburg, Munich, Berlin, and the Vienna State Opera. It was also my goal to sing in such theaters. I had worked so hard and had done everything in my power to climb the rungs to a sea house on my way to larger opera stages. I shudder to think how many auditions I sang and how many times I heard the words, Thank you. You'll hear from us if we need you. Many of my colleagues were landing jobs in C and B houses. With each audition and each rejection, my confidence and hope waned. Three years passed. One afternoon, I received a call from an agent in Vienna. He had seen me in the tenor role of Cassio in the opera Otello and had recommended me to Eberhard Wächter. Herr Wächter was looking for a tenor soloist to complete the ensemble for his upcoming position as director of the Vienna Volksoper. Before I boarded the train to Frankfurt, where the audition was to be held, Jeannie and I once again prayed for guidance. We had worked and prepared in every way possible and were trying to be patient. We shared our dream once again with the Lord and put the outcome in his hands. Just a few hours later, I called her with the miraculous news that I had indeed signed a contract. It wasn't until later that I learned that the Volksoper was an A house. With deep reverence and gratitude, my thoughts turned to the words, Neither shall your vine cast her fruit before the time in the field, saith the Lord of hosts. Had I been offered a contract after any of the previous auditions, I would have immediately signed away the next several years of my life. I believe success had been withheld until my voice, my acting ability, and my command of the language had ripened. Even after signing, I had two additional years of preparation before the contract went into effect. Principle five, allow the Lord to step between you and the devourer. To introduce this principle, I would like to quote the last verse of one of my favorite hymns. Be still, my soul. The hour is hastening on when we shall be forever with the Lord. When disappointment, grief, and fear are gone, sorrow forgot, love's purest joys restored, be still, my soul. When change and tears are past, all safe and blessed, we shall meet at last. I wish I could say that my Viennese premiere had been brilliant that I had stepped onto the stage and evoked bravos and standing ovations. But as it turned out, even with two years' preparation, my nerves got the better of me. My first public performance as a member of the Vienna Folks Opera Ensemble did not go as well as I had hoped. To make matters even worse, I had to read about my inadequacies in several Viennese newspapers the next day. Every day for two years I'd worked on that killer aria. What went wrong? 
The performances that followed went very well indeed, but my dream of making a big splash in the international opera scene did not happen. We were devastated, and it took some time before the sting of this experience subsided. Over the next few years, however, as I watched some of my colleagues experience the instant stardom for which I had hoped, I began to understand. To my sorrow, I often saw their marriages dissolve and families suffer in the wake of long absences born of international singing contracts. Who knows what would have happened to me, to my marriage, to my family, to my eternal welfare, if things had happened that quickly? Would I have been spiritually mature enough at that time to say no to prestige and wealth, even if it would have compromised my goals as a father? The Lord knows infinitely better than we do what will help and what will harm us. If we allow, he will open doors or shut them hard for our spiritual protection and eternal progress. Now, eventually, the international contracts and membership in the Vienna State Opera Ensemble did materialize. But in addition to these worldly blessings came great spiritual blessings. Being present as my sons grew to maturity, serving the Lord in my calling as a bishop, and interviewing each of my sons for their foreign missions from Austria to the United States. I look back with incredible gratitude to a loving father who, for my own welfare, tempered my ambition and allowed me to wait for success. Principle six, be willing to sacrifice all. This last principle is perhaps the most challenging. The Lord will require sacrifice. He will test our integrity and expect us to make difficult choices. He may ask us to drop our net and walk away from certain situations to follow him. He will ask us to bless others by freely imparting those material, intellectual, or spiritual gifts which may be ours. This is a refining principle. It is that which moves the metamorphic process from ordinary to extraordinary in the direction of our Savior. As a performer, the standards I set for myself long before I began my career were often challenged. There were times when I had to openly object to offensive stage movements or costuming. We must be willing to face ridicule or even dismissal, if need be, in meeting such challenges. Some will be black and white in nature. Others will be very private tests of integrity. All will prepare us to stand in the presence of the Lord without fear or shame. As you study and dream, make decisions and plans, remember to make the Lord your partner. Do not allow Satan to plant doubts which can foster a change of heart and foil God's divine plan for you. Allow the Lord to prepare the way as you work hard and wait upon his blessings. Know that there will be disappointments, but that all will work for your welfare as you learn sacrifice and charity. May I take this opportunity to say how grateful I am to be a part of the Brigham Young University community. Nothing that I have ever done professionally has been as satisfying. To be able to share those things which I have learned and help further President Kimball's vision of the arts as a teacher and mentor is a source of constant joy in my life. I was deeply touched and inspired by the cast and crew of our recent production of the musical drama Abinadi. How wonderful it was to hear from the stage 
words of a prophet testifying of the divinity of Christ. In closing, I would like to sing a medley of LDS hymns that was arranged by my accompanist, Timothy Dute. I met Tim at the University of Michigan as he was completing a degree in piano performance. He later received his master's degree in performance as well as an MBA from the University of Texas. His wife, Kathy, is with him this morning. She was one of the attending nurses for our only daughter, Sarah Maria. Sarah spent much of her life in the hospital during the 14 months she was with us on earth. We had the honor of sharing the gospel with Kathy and later introducing her to her husband, Tim. One evening, as Tim and I were discussing the privilege we will all have someday of seeing the face of Christ, we decided to select four hymns that would frame this sacred theme. Tim then composed the beautiful arrangement that I will sing for you shortly. My dear brothers and sisters, the day will come indeed, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, when we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in this body according that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. When the irrevocable passage of time has swallowed the minutes, hours, days, and years we call our earthly experience, and we lay this mortal by, when we look into the eyes of our Savior and fall to our knees at his feet, it is my prayer that we may feel his approval and hear his words, Well done, thou good and faithful servant, my child. This is my greatest desire in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Jesus, the very thought of thee, with sweetness fills my breast, but sweeter
so humbly for relief that I could never answer nay. I had not power to ask his name where to he went from whence he came. Yet there was something in his eye that won my love I knew not why. And in a moment to my view the stranger started from disguise You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Look for Miracles. We've just heard from Lawrence P. Vincent. After the break, we'll return with Catherine H. Black for Don't Miss the Miracle. This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Look for Miracles. Next is Catherine H. Black, BYU professor of dance at the time of this address, titled Don't Miss the Miracle. Many years ago, I discovered a book of poetry entitled In the Stillness is the Dancing. Within the pages of this book is a poem entitled Don't Miss the Miracle, compiled from an essay called Three Days to See, written by Helen Keller in 1933. I would like to begin my address today by sharing this poem with you. I, who cannot see, find hundreds of things to interest me through mere touch. I feel the delicate symmetry of a leaf. I pass my hands lovingly about the smooth skin of a silver birch or the rough shaggy bark of a pine. 
I feel the delightful, velvety texture of a flower and discover its remarkable convolutions, and something of the miracle of nature is revealed to me. Occasionally, if I am very fortunate, I place my hand gently on a small tree and feel the happy quiver of a bird in full song. At times my heart cries out with longing to see these things. If I can get so much pleasure from mere touch, how much more beauty must be revealed by sight? Yet those who have eyes apparently see little. The panorama of color and action which fills the world is taken for granted. It is a great pity that, in the world of light, the gift of sight is used only as a mere convenience rather than as adding a means of fullness to life. What does it mean to see? Webster's Encyclopedic Unabridged Dictionary lists 25 definitions for the word see. The first is to perceive with the eyes, look at. Being both blind and deaf, according to this definition, Helen Keller indeed could not see. However, according to other Webster definitions of the word, which include to perceive, discern, recognize, understand, and have insight intellectually or spiritually, Helen Keller not only saw very clearly, but through her writing admonishes us to do the same. Within the myriad of experiences we encounter every day, how much does each of us really see? How much do we allow the light which illuminates our world to permeate our beings? To what degree do we allow light to enlighten? What is light? Again, I turn to Webster's Encyclopedic Dictionary which defines light as that which makes things visible or affords illumination. In John chapter 1 we are told, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. Speaking to the people in Jerusalem at the temple, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. The Bible dictionary tells us that the light of Christ is just what the words imply—enlightenment, knowledge, and an uplifting, ennobling, persevering influence that comes upon mankind because of Jesus Christ. For instance, Christ is the true light that lighteth every man that cometh into the world. The light of Christ fills the immensity of space and is the means by which Christ is able to be in all things and through all things and is round about all things. It giveth life to all things and is the law by which things are governed. It is also the light that quickeneth man's understanding. At the recent funeral of Dr. W. Ralph Anderson, BYU Professor Emeritus of Botany and Range Science, I was inspired by excerpts from his journal, which were read by several of his children. Brother Anderson deeply contemplated the concept of light and truth and of seeing with spiritual eyes. He believed that it was the duty of each of us to use our God-given personal authority to seek to know God 
and to do so by kindling our own light and then walking in the light that we kindle. The brighter the light, the clearer the vision. The gift of life and the gift of light are inseparably connected, and quality of life is directly proportional to the degree to which we use the gift of light, not, as Keller says, for mere convenience, but as a means of adding fullness to life. Doing so allows us to not miss the many miracles in our lives which, in rewarding our faith, demonstrate to us that God knows us as individuals and loves us. When we turn ourselves over to Him and let Him direct our paths, we are blessed with the peace that comes from the realization that whatever we experience in life is as it was meant to be. I would now like to share with you a few examples of occasions when I have been fortunate to perceive the hand of the Lord in my destiny. Hopefully they will serve to rekindle within you memories of and gratitude for your own similar encounters with Him as He has directed your paths in the past. It is my hope that they will also inspire each of us to strive to sharpen our perceptions and help us rejoice in the evidence of God's hand in each of our lives as our various futures unfold. The first example relates to the passing of my mother in October 1994. Our immediate family—mom, dad, my younger sister Barbara, and I—had gathered for the weekend at my sister's home in Calgary, Alberta, Canada to celebrate mom and dad's golden wedding anniversary. Although their anniversary was on October 20th, we decided to celebrate it the weekend before from October 14th through the 16th because I was choreographing a musical at BYU which was scheduled to open shortly after the 20th and I needed to be back in Utah with enough time to fulfill my professional obligations. My sister and I prepared a weekend full of surprises for our parents, beginning with four gold-colored helium-filled balloons with Happy 50th Anniversary printed on them, each balloon symbolizing each one of us. These we tied to a banister just inside my sister's front door to greet our parents when they arrived. We enjoyed the most wonderful time that weekend that we had ever spent together as a family. It was important to my sister and me that our parents have a final surprise on the actual date of their anniversary. This, we decided, should be a bouquet of peace roses, a variety that Mom had chosen as her wedding flowers. As we proceeded to order these flowers, we learned that that particular variety no longer existed, but that there was one that was very close—yellow, with a tinge of pink around the top of the petals—and that they had to be ordered from Holland. No problem. We ordered one and a half dozen of them to be delivered to our parents' home in Edmonton on the 20th. As soon as we hung up the phone, being into symbolism but not having thought quickly enough before we phoned in the order, I immediately regretted not having ordered 20 roses, which to me would have symbolized the date of the anniversary. However, we decided to leave the order as it had been placed, and that was that. Early in the morning of October 17th, the day we had designated for my parents and me to return to our respective homes, Mom suffered a severe stroke, which ultimately took her life just after midnight on October 19th one day short of the 50th anniversary. When we arrived home from the hospital that night, one of the four balloons on the banister, 
out of helium, was limp and lying at the base of the other balloons. The flowers from Holland suddenly became funeral flowers and were rerouted to Calgary for the private funeral which we held there on the 20th. When the flowers arrived at the funeral home, there were not 18, but in fact 20. And during the ceremony, one rose began to wilt. By the time we took the flowers back to my sister's home, that one flower had significantly withered, leaving 19. For us, symbolic of the date that my mother passed away. A mere coincidence? I choose to think not. For us, it was the Lord's arms around us, telling us in His own way that it was time for our wife and mother to return to Him and that all was well. My second example concerns my father, Michael Herbert, who passed away in August of 1999. Throughout his life, Dad liked to buy things. Shortly before he died, he purchased several rose bushes from a catalog and, since he had no garden of his own, bequeathed them to my sister. Although Alberta is wild rose country, domestic roses are very hard to grow there. But my sister wanted to try, and one spring I went up to help her plant the rose bushes. A good gardener, she did all she could to assure that the roses would survive. And they did for a while in what she named the Michael Herbert Rose Garden. The summer after Dad passed away, while I was visiting my sister, one of the rose bushes was coming into bloom. It was at least the second season that the bush had flowered. Never before had a flower on that bush been anything but pure yellow. At this particular time, however, the rose that was blooming was tinged with pink around the top of the petals. And subsequently, the yellow flowers on this bush continued to bloom with pink edges. A tender miracle? I think so. My final example has unfolded throughout my lifetime and as a result will be considerably longer than the previous two. In August of 1972, I was hired on a one-year appointment as a faculty member in the Department of Dance at Brigham Young University. I was not yet a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It was an interesting year. The students were as full of light and conviction then as now. Unofficial missionaries who were grounded in their faith lived what they believed and extended themselves to me with love, respect, and caring. Although I was not what one would call a golden convert, their efforts did bear fruit, and I was baptized on August 18, 1973. As a child, I had grown up in the Russian Orthodox faith and attended Divine Liturgy on Sundays at St. Barbara's Cathedral in Edmonton, Alberta. The service was delivered in the Russian language, which I did not understand, because my parents, like so many children of immigrants at that time, chose not to speak their heritage language anywhere in favor of English and assimilation into the Canadian culture. There were understandable reasons for this. My mother often related stories of unkind words and deeds she and other members of her family experienced throughout their lives because they were different. Growing up, I was also occasionally a recipient of similar unkind acts. While I was a junior high school student, each class member was routinely required during a roll call of sorts to state aloud from their desks their ethnic heritage. For those of us with German and Russian ancestry, it was not a particularly joyful activity, being that our classmates followed our declarations with taunts of Nazi 
or commie. I hated those days. I would come home from school in tears, begging my mother, couldn't I please say I'm Ukrainian? But even though reliving her pain through mine, she would always say the words I wished were not true. No, Catherine, we are not Ukrainian. We are Russian. The one goal I had in life was to someday marry a man with an Anglo-Saxon surname, like brown or white or green. <laughs> Although I was ashamed of my heritage, I did believe in God and I wanted to do what was right. So I attended church regularly, even though I did not understand a word of what was being said throughout the service. As a freshman at the University of Alberta, I began to receive gentle promptings to study the Russian language. The reason for this eluded me, but I listened, took a beginning Russian course, and not being especially talented at language learning then or now, shortly after having completed the course, promptly forgot everything I had been taught. Why did I need to learn Russian? I finished undergraduate school, worked for two years to save money for graduate school, enrolled at the University of Utah, enjoyed the two years I spent there very much, learned a great deal about modern dance, and graduated. I knew that since I was not an American citizen, I needed to return to Canada, which I was not quite ready to do because I wanted to hone the dance skills I had just acquired before returning home to a more pioneering environment. I investigated and discovered something called a practical training visa, which allowed international students to remain in the United States for up to 18 months to practice skills they had learned in school by being employed in a discipline-related field. I resolved that the first university position offered to me in the United States would be the one I would accept. That position was offered by BYU. Thanks to the efforts of then-Dean of the College of Physical Education, Clayne Jensen, my practical training visa was renewed every year for four years until I met and married a wonderful widower from New Zealand who had a vibrant and talented young daughter and a green card. Because he had a green card, I was able to obtain a green card, and my year at BYU has turned into 34 years in Steele counting. Almost immediately becoming a member of the Church, the spirit of Elijah began to burn deeply within me. I not only faced the fact that I had Russian ancestry but began to embrace it. I became overwhelmingly grateful for all of the sacrifices that both sets of grandparents had made in eking out a better existence in a new land for themselves and their posterity. I started studying Russian again between babies and BYU obligations, learning and forgetting and learning again. I cannot tell you how many times I asked myself, why am I doing this? This is crazy. I don't have anyone with whom to speak the language. It must be so that I can read genealogical records someday, if I can ever gain access to them from behind the Iron Curtain. Meanwhile, in the summer of 1989, a wonderful opportunity was made available to me. I was invited to accompany the BYU International Folk Dance Ensemble on their tour to Russia, Poland, and England. As the plane touched down at the Sheremetev International Airport in Moscow, I remember thinking we could just as well be landing somewhere on the Canadian prairies. It looks exactly the same. No wonder so many Slavic people settled there at the beginning of the 20th century. They must have felt a measure of security in the midst of geographically familiar surroundings, in spite of the many hardships they had to face. 
my mother's father always wanted to return to Russia for a visit before he died. But unfortunately, that never happened. For me, going to Russia with the folk dancers was going back for him. I thought about him continually the entire time I was there. I loved being surrounded by the Russian people and their culture, and I got to practice the language. But something told me that the real purpose for my learning the Russian language had not yet been fulfilled. In my excitement to experience Russia, I had completely underplayed my pending opportunity to experience the people and culture of Poland. That is, until I remembered that my father's parents had been born in Poland. I wondered if the folk dancers would be performing anywhere near where these grandparents grew. As I looked at the map, I remember the following rapidly developing chain of thoughts. Hmm, interesting, not too far. I wonder if there would be any way I could work it out to get to their villages. No, I have to find a way to get there. No matter what, I will find a way. The plane landed in Warsaw. We boarded a bus which had been reserved to take us to Mongolvo in the north of Poland. I was sitting in the front seat across from the driver when our tour guide Danuta boarded the bus with a clipboard in her hands. As she was looking over the ensemble roster, I heard her say, Kathy Black. Sitting directly in front of her, I responded, That's me. To which she replied, I see you are from Canada. I worked for two years learning English. The two of us bonded immediately. After just a few hours with the folk dance ensemble, Danuta noticed that there was something special about the group compared to others she had been assigned in the past. She said that the performers and leaders were not self-centered, that they were kind and polite to each other, and that they did not ask for anything unless they really needed it. One of the things we did ask for was a room, one that we could use for a church meeting the next morning. Danuta procured the room and asked whether guests could attend this church meeting. Of course the answer was yes, and she was warmly encouraged to join us, which she did. It was a beautiful testimony meeting during which Danuta was moved to tears a number of times. Following the meeting, I gave her my triple combination, and she immediately began to read about Joseph Smith. Later that day, we boarded the bus back to Warsaw, and at the end of that journey, Danuta informed us that we would have a different tour guide to accompany us to the Carpathian Mountains in southeastern Poland. And she also said that she would come the next day to say goodbye to us, which she did. Before she left, I explained to her my obsession about going to visit my grandparents' villages and asked her if there would be any way that she might be able to help me do so. Being the problem solver that she is, she said that she would see what she could do. Danuta took down the last names of my ancestors and their villages and told me she would see me tomorrow. As had been the case in Russia, 1989 was also a very difficult time economically for Poland. Shelves were bare of essential merchandise, and having a telephone, let alone a car, was a luxury. When Danuta arrived to meet us at the bus the next day, she had acquired a car, a driver, and two contacts whom she had called who agreed to meet with me in the Carpathian Mountains. One of these people was a priest, and the other a gentleman by the name of Mieczysław Herbert, who said that he was sure we were not related because he came from a different part of Poland than my grandparents. However, pressing him, Danuta asked if he would be willing to meet with me anyway in spite of his reservations, and he said he would. 
We were scheduled to meet at a restaurant in Noe Sanche. Danuta, our driver, and I arrived first and visited while we waited for Mr. Herbert. As he walked through the door, tears welled up in my eyes. On the screen is a photo of Mitchiswa Herbert. Beside him now is a photo of my father, Michael Herbert. This is one miracle that nobody could miss. Even more uncanny than the remarkable physical resemblance of these two men was their identical nature of mannerisms. It was absolutely unbelievable. Upon receipt of the photograph of my father, Mitchiswa, who learned English while a German prisoner of war during World War II, wrote to Michael informing him that he knew he had discovered his twin brother. The two men continued to correspond with each other until Mitchiswa's death in the mid-1990s. Although we have not yet been able to verify a generic relationship between these two men, I'm working on it. In addition to visiting my grandparents' villages and meeting with people there, Danuta and I searched genealogical records and I was able to add a generation to my family tree. Since then, Danuta has joined the Church, become proficient in genealogy, and has helped many Americans find their Polish ancestors. By searching Polish records on my behalf, she has helped me access several generations to add to my family tree. In 2005, she was called to co-direct the newly created LDS Warsaw Family History Center. I never cease to marvel at the privilege that has been mine to have been part of this amazing series of events. And there is yet another dimension to this story. On the 1989 trip, we discovered that the family names on my father's side were not, in fact, Russian, but names that belonged to a Slavic minority population known as Lemkos, who identified themselves as Russians at the time my grandparents left for North America. This discovery has resulted in a serious academic research agenda for me, which has included trips back to Poland for the express purpose of studying the dance and rituals of these people. In the latter part of the 1990s, the prompting to study Russian arose yet again. This time I hired a tutor to speak with me once a week over several weeks. Then, on March 19th of 2000, as an almost empty nester, while reading a front-page feature article in the Deseret News entitled Orphans in Vladivostok, I was overcome by a desire to adopt a Russian orphan. I turned to my husband, positive he would say, we're too old, and shared my thoughts with him. To my surprise, he replied, why not? As we discussed it further, we decided that it would be best for us to adopt two children rather than one, and that we would like them to be sisters between the ages of six and ten. We had never before talked about adoption of any kind, therefore we did not even know where to begin. We decided to start by contacting our adult children to seek their approval. That obtained, we were led, through a series of timely events, to an agency specializing in Russian adoptions. Interestingly, one of the directors of the agency told us that on the day before I was reading the article in the Deseret News, they had emailed Russia and asked a contact there to see if they could get two or three more children whom they felt certain they could place. They were told that two sisters, aged seven and eight, 
had just been approved for adoption. We were able to afford this adoption because of an inheritance left to us following my father's passing. The first physical piece of documentation we received concerning the children was a photograph. One of the little girls bore a striking resemblance to my mother's youngest sister. The photograph was followed by written information about the girls. In it, we discovered that the one who looked so much like my mother's sister also had the same birthday as my father. When we discovered the girl's surname, it turned out that it was the very name that my parents had planned to give my sister had she been a boy. These and other similar coincidences, some too personal to share at this time, made it clear beyond a shadow of a doubt to my husband and me that these two beautiful children were meant to be part of our family. Although the process was anything but smooth, miracles continued to happen, and in late October of 2000, the judge in Russia pounded her gavel and those two little Russian sisters became legally ours. It was wonderful to have the basic Russian language skills to be able to help ease the girls into their new environment. As they have become fluent in English, my promptings to learn Russian have stilled, and I am at peace in knowing the ultimate purpose for which I needed to know the language. What joy and peace we can receive from the recognition of the many miracles in our lives. May we strive constantly not to miss them, but to see them clearly. Is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Look for Miracles with thoughts from Lawrence P. Vincent and Catherine H. Black. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.